Oscars, and uh, some of you are excited about that, one of you at least. Um, that's great. It's a time when we sort of reflect on when uh, and what are the good stories that are being told in our culture right now. And so it's kind of a celebration of story, and, and deeply embedded in all of us is this longing for those stories and the way that they impact our lives. And when I study the book of Revelation, as we've been doing over the last weeks, it's clear to me that there's a reason that we get excited about these stories, because actually what's really going on in the world is that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, is writing the most magnificent story that's ever been written, and it's a true story, and it's unfolding in front of us right now, and he's written it across all of creation and all of humanity and everything that ever has been, and it's all coming together in fulfillment. Uh, and when we look at the book of Revelation, we get to see sort of the big overarching storyline, and it's beautiful and glorious and good, and something in our hearts just sort of sings about that. Last week, as we were looking in chapters 10 and about, we had the, uh, the appearance of this, this beast that came and I said last week that um, this week we'd be explaining a little bit more about that. I know that for many of us there's just kind of this curiosity and this question about what is this, who is the beast, and what, how do I make sense of this? And, and maybe you've got phantoms of nightmares and scary things that you've thought about through childhood or even later as you think about the images of the beast and all the things that happen in Revelation that don't make sense. And, and then you know, you know that... That, that symbol of 666, which it says will be on people's heads and, and hands, and, and maybe you've got some phantom thought about that and it scares you, and that's in our text today too. So I'm pretty excited to try and clarify some of these things and hopefully take away some of the scary mystery that accompanies them. So would you open to Revelation 12? Revelation 12, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll pass one to you. Don't be shy about that. We'd like to Make sure you get a Bible into your hands. Um, everything I hope to say is going to stem from what's on the pages of Scripture here. So Revelation 12 and 13, it's page 717 in that Bible that we hand out. And uh, you can take that Bible home with you if you would like. Um, but we are wanting you to have um, that. I'm going to do something today where I'm going to read part of this and then I'm going to tell part of it like I've been doing just so we can get through the book of Revelation um, in a, an appropriate way. Um, and and uh, what we're going to really see in the two chapters, 12 and 13, that we're looking at are two battles, or really one battle with, from two places. We're going to see the cosmic battle that's taking place up in the heavenlies, and then we're going to see the outworking of that battle on earth. And so let me just warn you, we're going to be talking about some pretty high-level, crazy, lofty ideas and it's going to take me a little time to kind of get that down onto the practical level. And I'm not actually going to have enough time to do that fully today. So these are a lot of principles that you're going to get. But they will filter down into life, especially as we get to the end of our time together. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the cosmic battle and read some of that. And then we'll see about the earthly battle and how they're connected and what lessons we have. Now, what's happening on earth is really the result of a cosmic spiritual battle, a battle that's taking place 
even now that's spiritual in nature. This is a really important dynamic. Paul made that clear to us back in the book of Ephesians where he writes this, and we'll put it up on the screen. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. And so right from the get-go, we understand that what's really happening in the world is that there's this, this spiritual tension, this, this battle that's taking, on, taking place behind the scenes. And what the book of Revelation is good for is that it helps to pull back the curtain and peer into what's really happening behind the scenes. And that's going to help us because a lot of confusing stuff happens in the world. And we look around at everything and we're, we don't know what to make of all these experiences that we're having. And if we have the big picture, if we've been able to peer into the heavenlies and see what's going on behind the scenes, it helps us to make sense of what's going on in our lives right now. And that's what is happening in the book of Revelation. God, through Jesus, through John the Apostle, is giving us that window behind the scenes to understand what is really happening so that we can make sense out of the life around us. And I am struck in the book of Revelation as we've been going through it how so often there are these sort of shorthand descriptions of really the whole storyline of the Bible. And some of you have struggled to put together the Bible. What's really going on here? What is the big picture? And so we've got one of these today where I hope it will help you to put together the overarching storyline of the Scripture. And before I read it, though, I want to describe some of the characters because when you understand who the characters are, it will make sense a little bit more clearly. Now, it's, it's not difficult, but let's just go over this, and then I'm going to read the passage. So in the first part we're reading, there's three different characters. There's so first of all, a woman, and she's arrayed in the sun. I don't know how you do that, but she's, she's dressed by the sun, and she's standing on the moon, and she's surrounded in a, with a crown of 12 stars. Now, as has happened so many times in the book of Revelation, this is hearkening back to an earlier time in the history of the people of God. And those of you who remember the story of Joseph will remember that Joseph had a dream and there were 11 stars and there was a sun and the moon and they bowed down to him in worship. And so uh, we have a similar kind of uh, recollection going on here. And so what most people understand this to refer to then, this woman, is the woman represents the people of God because that was the initial forming moment of the people of God. And then later on in this text, we'll see how the woman also, uh, there's further affirmation that this woman represents the people of God. Uh, and then the woman gives birth to a child. The child is the expected Messiah who will bring salvation to the people of God. Uh, they've been waiting and hoping. In fact, in Isaiah 26, it says, there's a comparison made, that the people of God are pregnant, but they're giving birth to the wind. They're giving birth to nothing. And now, all of a sudden, they're going to give birth to this Messiah who's going to bring salvation. And then the third character in this first part of the story, is the dragon. And it will be explained that the dragon is, in fact, the devil, is Satan. And let me just clarify that this isn't the beast. So we're going to talk about beasts in the second part. But this is, first of all, just the dragon. And it's the interaction between the woman and the child and the dragon that make this first scene of the heavenly sort of outworking here of the story of redemption. So um, look with me in chapter 12, verse 1. And now you know who the characters are, and follow along and see if we can bring some clarity and kind of put this all together. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. Remember, this is John. This is the vision he's seeing. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, 
and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. And so we've got a little bit of the Exodus background here and the people of God are being nourished in the wilderness. Verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael who's an angel, and his angels fought against the dragon. Now, pause there for a second and notice something. When you think about the dragon, when you think about Satan fighting, who do you think about him fighting against? Most likely, if you're normal, you think about him fighting against God, right? Because that's what the battle is between God and Satan, right? No. The battle is between Michael, the archangel of heaven, and Satan. In other words, Satan doesn't even get to take a swing at God, okay? Because standing in between is the archangel. So God doesn't, so, so the, the appropriate battle configuration is between the angel and Satan. And that's important because we don't live in this kind of Star Wars world where there's this good against evil and you don't know who's going to win ultimately. That it's questionable who's got the ultimate power. We live in a world in which God has the ultimate power. And the battle takes place on a lower level than that between the angel and Satan. Now, this also elevates the angel to think that he will defeat Satan, and that's exactly what happens. I, I, I can't wait to get to heaven and see Michael and what an amazing creature this is going to be, overwhelmingly powerful and, and beautiful and wonderful. It has to be the case because... The dragon, it goes on to say, and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail against Michael, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Now, the question that you might ask is, when did this take place? Because this is happening in the heavenly realm, and and how does it correlate with the passing of time? When we look at the Bible, we see there's three places where Satan is bound. He's bound at the very beginning when Adam and Eve fall, and then it's proclaimed that uh, his head will be crushed. He's bound in the life of Jesus when Jesus binds Satan as he does the exorcisms, and then he goes to the cross and dies again. And then we're going to read, we're going to come to Satan being bound again the third time in the future at the eschaton. That's the final binding of Satan. And so which one is it in this particular moment? And probably what's happening in this text is that we're telescoping out and looking at the overall big picture, simply making the point that Satan will be bound and is bound by God. And the other thing to notice about this is 
how Satan functions. It says that he functions by deception. That's his means for wreaking havoc in the world, is by deceiving. I like to think about in the Garden of Eden how the serpent didn't have arms. In other words, he couldn't take the fruit and foist it upon Adam and Eve. All he could do was suggest to them deceptively, and they bought into it, and so they reached out and grabbed the fruit and ate it. The power of Satan is in his deception. And the good news about that, as we're going to see later on, is that deception can be dealt with. In fact, there's a way for us to deal with it, which is going to come out in the text as we keep going. But note that uh, as a very important point, that the way that Satan works is by deception. Now, we're back in the heavenly room, verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, so back up in the heavenlies, and there's this super encouraging, powerful word that comes next. The salvation and the power and the kingdom are our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. Now, you may understand that verse on an intimate kind of a way, that the one who accuses the brothers and sisters day and night. When you become a believer, you, you, you kind of get into the crosshairs of the, of the enemy. And his work is to accuse us before God. And we experience that on a regular basis. But he is conquered, verse 11, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. So the the devil gets kicked out of heaven. He loses the, the, the battle in the heavenly realm. It says, verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. It's like he woke up on earth all of a sudden. He had no control over the situation. He was tossed out. He persecuted the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Isaiah 40, 31, you will be born up on wings of eagles so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, where she was nourished for a time, times, and a half time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. And and as so often happens, we're not sure exactly the nature of this flood, but probably it's the torrent of deceit that comes out of the serpent attempting to wash away Woman. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. I love how the earth continues to track along with the plight of the human beings. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. When we peel back the curtain, what we see with a kind of clarity is this hopeful message about the winning of the battle by God. 
that this spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes is done with because of the victory of God. And that is clear to us in the heavenly realm, Satan is cast out. And so now the scene shifts to earth. And what is the enemy going to do now that he finds himself on earth? So if you want to understand what makes Satan tick is at the very core, a desire to be God, to, to usurp the place of God. But when he can't do that, then he pursues those beings that God has created. And when he can't be successful there and he's thrown on earth, he pursues the ones who bear the image of God. And that's you and I. And he wakes up on earth and he's been reduced and he's frustrated and his time is short. And so now what's going to happen next? And, and what happens next is a remarkable tale. And let me tell you again who the characters are in chapter 13. What's going to happen in chapter 13 is it's going to start with the dragon, the Satan, the serpent. And he lands on the beach, and like a scene from a, from a monster movie, he's, he finds himself on the beach, and he's, he's, what's he going to do? He's going to, he's going to enter into the realm of humanity to wreak havoc. And at the same time, we're told, now here's where the beast element comes in, that a beast from the sea appears that has 10 horns, seven heads, 10 crowns. It's like a leopard and a bear and a lion and, and all the crazy imagery that is so characteristic of the book of Revelation. And here's the interesting thing, though. It has a fatal head wound that looks to be healed, this beast from the sea. Does that sound familiar to you? that there's a fatal wound that looks to be healed? Who else had a fatal wound that was healed? There's only one, really, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross, and then he was raised again. And we land right in the middle of one of the key themes of the book of Revelation here and the way that Satan operates, and that is Satan loves to imitate what God has done. So here in the beast, you see the imitation of Christ. It has a fatal wound on the head, but looks to be healed. And it's an attempt to mock and to, to, to imitate what God has already done. And keep that in mind, because we're going to see that in a number of places. So after the first beast, though, is a second beast that comes out of the earth. So the first one comes out of the sea, and the second one comes out of the earth. And hang with me here. I know it's a lot. There are two horns on this one. It has the voice of a dragon, and um, it compels people to worship the first beast. So you have the dragon, beast one out of the sea, and then it has a wound that seems to be healed, and then beast two out of the earth, and that beast compels people to worship beast one. Now let's take stock of this. You've got three beings... There's a clear hierarchy. There's the dragon. There's the second one that seems to have a fatal wound but be healed. And then there's the third one whose purpose and goal is to compel others to glorify the first beast. At some point, that should start to resonate if you've been studying your Bible and you understand what the Trinity is, where you have the Father and the Son who is wounded, 
mortally and raised again, and the Holy Spirit, the point of which, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to bring glory to the Son, Jesus Christ. Remember I said that one of the things that Satan likes to do is to imitate. And here he has literally attempted to imitate the very trinity, the very triune God in the dragon and the two beasts. And that's why it gets confusing. If you don't understand that key, it gets very confusing because it seems like there's this sort of endless creatures coming out, but there's a purpose to them. So what happens with these three, these three imitations of the triune God? Well, first of all, the, the, the beast from the sea goes around boasting and blaspheming and trying to get people to worship it. And so opposite to the person of Jesus who goes in humility, in poverty, in, you know, clarity of teaching, um, in sacrifice, this beast does the opposite. But people are won over by it. And they feel pressured to follow the beast. But they're encouraged to resist. Such that in verse 10, it says, in relation to all of this, this calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. That's the people of God. As the beast goes around boasting and blaspheming and calling people to worship it, the saints are to be faithful and to endure. And it says, just previous to that, even if that means you get taken into captivity, that's okay. Whatever it means for your personal self, it's okay. You stay true. You be faithful. And you endure. So then the second beast comes on the scene. And the second beast, the whole goal of the second beast is through speech. Remember, it has the same voice as the dragon. Through speech and signs and deception, it compels people to worship the beast. So it it tries to create a scenario where people can't avoid worshiping the beast. And this is where the 666 number that you've heard about comes in. Because the, the second beast creates an economic scenario where the only way you get to participate in the economy of the world is if you have the sign on you of worship of the beast, which is 666. Now, what is going on here? I'm sure if you're not confused already, you're confused now uh, as I've introduced this concept of the beast. Now, you've heard this 666. What is happening there? Well, it turns out that in Hebrew, the letters of Hebrew also are numbers, And so sometimes that would become a code for communicating things secretively. And we don't know exactly what John is trying to communicate through the 666, but one way that you can figure those numbers, it could spell out the name of Nero Caesar. That's probably the most likely interpretation of the 666. Now, Nero Caesar was the awful emperor of Rome at the time who persecuted Christians, Okay. So what the, what the beast is trying to do is trying to put a mark on the people that, that claims ownership over them. And in this case, the mark is narrow Caesar. Now, the way that we're reading the book of Revelation is we're seeing that it's interpreted for that day. It's interpreted in kind of a global way, and it's interpreted for the future. And so what we would see in that is that this is a framework for history. Throughout history, over and over again, there have been quote-unquote, beasts who have tried to compel people to worship them and to control the flow of history. 
And so narrow Caesar would be one expression of that. But perhaps you could say that some of the other tyrants we've experienced in the history of the world, like Hitler or whoever else, would be other expressions of this same dynamic. And that one day, there will be the ultimate version of that that, of course, will end up being defeated, but before, will attempt to woo people into, into worship. And what God is doing is he's saying, look, people of God, you need to know that this is how history works so that your eyes are open and you don't get fooled. Don't follow the imitations of the enemy. It's funny, even that 666 on the forehead and the hand is an imitation. Let me take you back to Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 8. We'll put it up on the screen. These commandments, God says, right in the very beginning to his people, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Satan is attempting to foist a new mark on the people that signifies ownership. He's imitating again. But the solution is to live into Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 8. To bind ourselves with the truth, with with the knowledge of God and His commands. So from a historical perspective, this happens over and over again. In each case, the solution is going to be to remember the authentic version of being marked by God, which is to bind His words on our bodies to wrap ourselves in his truth. And when we do that, we gain clarity to be able to perceive the deceptions of the enemy. Well, let's take stock of where we are. There's a battle in heaven. The curtain was pulled back. We got to see that. The enemy, Satan, is not as powerful as we thought. He doesn't even get to fight God, just fights one of his creatures. He's frustrated because he's defeated. He knows his time is short, so he's thrashing about on earth. And in that process, we'll catch up some of the people of God in his thrashings. But his victory is only ever temporary and partial. In fact, God always turns the sacrifice of his people back on the enemy, just as he did with Jesus on the cross. Satan thought he had the victory. He thought it was over when Jesus was in the grave, sealed in the tomb. And God, in raising up Jesus, demonstrated that no, in fact, it wasn't over, and that he, not Satan, was victorious. And as we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation, that is our story too, What is entailed in being a follower of Jesus, the people of God, is that we have to follow Christ into his sacrifice. We have to take up our cross, whatever that looks like, be willing to give up our lives rather than to to give up our faith, 
to be willing to give it up, and God will always take that and turn it into his, a part of his victory and his defeat of Satan. Now, the rest of the book of Revelation is going to help us understand that part, and then what it, what it gets to. We're going to spend like three, four weeks, I think, in heaven. It's going to be awesome. So if you're frustrated with some of this stuff, just wait. We'll get there, okay? But we're going to leave this part of the story here, and I want to just briefly draw out a few lessons that will help us hopefully navigate life right now. Lesson number one. There is an invisible battle, and it's spiritual in nature. And the field of the battle is the mind and the heart and the spirit. That's where this is all playing out. It's the spiritual realm, and that's how we connect into what's going on in the world around us spiritually. You are a soldier then who's fighting in another dimension. You're a soldier fighting in another dimension. You just can't get away from how much the Bible uses that imagery to talk about what's happening in the world around us. And I know we don't sometimes like to think of ourselves as soldiers. But the problem is that, and this is my second point, a wartime alertness is a must in this. A wartime alertness is a must. Without it, we lack the critical awareness, and that's going to cost us in terms of spiritual defeat. If we don't know we're in a battle, we're going to be more easily deceived. If we don't know that there's somebody coming after us to try and deceive us, then we're much more susceptible. But if you have your alertness that comes with understanding that you're in a battle, then you're going to be more quick to see the tactics of the enemy and to ferret them out. I find this to be the case so often in my life. I look back and I think, ah, I should have known. If I'd have been more alert, I should have known that the enemy was going to come after me this way. Now, of course, that's always going to be the case. And we just have to throw ourselves on the mercy of Christ because thankfully, we're not the ones who win the battle, right? God does. So there's that, which is very hopeful and secure. At the same time, we're called to be alert, and alertness is something that we practice over time. Okay, number one, there's invisible battle. Number two, wartime alertness is a must. Number three, attacks come by deception. The enemy tries to make false what is true and tries to make true what is false. That is the tactic. That's it. So you just have to figure out how not to fall for the trap, right? But you can't figure that out. In your own strength, you need God, and God in his goodness and mercy has given us what we need in his word. That's why we're to be marked by the word of God, not by the numbers of the enemy, but the word of God. That's why the word becomes central. That's why this book is so incredibly important because it's like the spiritual eyewear that we put on to pierce through the smoke and fog and see what's really happening in the world around us. So we got to immerse ourselves in this and marinate in it, submerge our minds in the word of God so that we can see, we can identify the imposter, the deceit, those things that are not true. Number four, the endurance and faithfulness are a function 
of identifying the lies. That's what I just said. And number five, Satan's greatest lie is I win when he says, I win, come and worship me. Because the story is that God wins, not the enemy. That Jesus fought the decisive battle in his life and death and resurrection. One of the things that happens when you're, when you're riding a bike a lot is that you'll get this sense that something is off or something is wrong or, or maybe a, the brake is rubbing on the wheel and it's slowing you down. And inevitably, you eventually stop and you look and the brake is almost never rubbing on the wheel. But the, the, the mindset, the thought that it's rubbing on the wheel starts to work on your brain and cause you doubts. And Satan applies the same tactic to us. He says, he says, he weighs us down with concerns and thoughts that aren't ultimately true. And we think under the weight of those that we can't, or it's over, or it's impossible, or there's no hope. And we're aligning our lives in that moment and allowing things that are not true to shape who we are and what we think and what we do. And one of the beautiful things of the gospel is that in Christ, God cuts through all of that and scatters away the falseness so that we can be set free by the truth. In the process of absorbing God's word and understanding his overarching story is ultimately a process of being set free from the deceit of the enemy. When we think about the ways in which we're deceived and attacked, Satan loves to get in there in our relationships and make things that aren't true seem true. And think about some of your relationships. How many times do you wonder what somebody else is thinking about you in a negative way? How many times do they do that to you? That's the playing field of the enemy to, to get us to think that everybody around us is thinking the wrong things of us and vice versa. You look at what's going on in our world today. and The Bible says that people are made in God's image. That means that every single person has the dignity that comes from being made in the image of God. And yet Satan's deception would have us think that some people are more valuable than others. And you look at our struggles with class issues and race issues and other kinds of similar issues, and at the end of the day, it comes down to us forgetting or not realizing that each person is made in the image of God and therefore bears that same dignity. That's the way that Satan works. He does it on the grand scale and he does it on the small scale in your relationships with your children or in your, in your marriage. He interjects untrue things, deceitful notions 
And as you massage them, it begins to wear down and break down the relationship. Same thing happens in the vertical relationship with God. The Bible teaches that we are chosen, adopted, beloved children of God. That's our identity. It's who we are. It's the most true thing in Christ about us. And Satan would be the accuser who says, no, you're not. What you just did there, that sin that you committed, no. No, you've removed yourself from the favor of God. He loves that one. You're beyond hope. It's over. I win. And the light of the truth of the word of God pierces through all of that. And the truth sets you free. God, would you set us free? Set us free from the deceit and the lies of the enemy that seek to destroy the relationships on the horizontal plane and worse, destroy our relationship with you. Manifest your strength and power in us through your word as we draw near. Make us ambassadors of truth that others might be set free, that others might be healed, that others might enter into eternal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And God, we pray all this in in Christ's name. Amen.